Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussion of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Guess what time it is? It's time for crime! Travis Alexander was a good-looking and charismatic entrepreneur and motivational speaker. He was enjoying good health, financial success, world travel, and a bustling social life. Then he met Jody in Las Vegas at a convention and life changed. His life began and ended with tragedy. Questions that we want to ask in this episode are, what if you grew up not watching R-rated movies? What's something you borrowed from an ex and didn't return? And what does September 11th have to do with this case? Stay tuned to find out. Hey guys, welcome back. We know you've missed us. This is Vanny. And this is Kat. So, are we excited about this episode or are we not? Oh yeah, get to finish this up. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy people on wheels. Yes, yes, yes. Well, before we go into the case, uh, continuing of this case, how was your week? How are you weekend, I should say? Oh, it was good. It was good. Had a good, good week. Things were hopping at work, so... Otherwise, I didn't do anything too too exciting. Nothing, Just the nothing usual exciting. crap you got to do around the house. Yeah, same here. Nothing too exciting, but we did get some exciting little shout out from good old Jonathan on Twitter. His Twitter account name is at fractured underscore J. And he mentioned us because he listened to our podcast when we were talking about liquid death. Oh, how exciting. Yes, that was really exciting. So I want to send out a shout out to our man out in New Zealand that listens to us, Jonathan. Thank you for listening to us. And we just wanted to make sure we mentioned that we did see your post and that we appreciate all the love. And we saw liquid death commented on your post. So we're like, yeah, <laughs> <all> liquid death. <laughs> or our group out there, if you get a chance. Catch him on Twitter and check out his page yes. as well. So shout out to Jonathan from New Zealand. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, yes. Let's go a little into the continuation of this case. Last we left as Jody moved out to California to move in with her grandparents after her and uh, Travis ended things. Yeah, so she finally packs her bags and leaves, and Travis is just ecstatic, saying, telling friends and family that he got his life back. His brother, Stephen, called her kryptonite. Hmm. That was his word for her, because Travis just could not let go. let go and stay away. Just kryptonite. She finally moves back to California, big sigh of relief, and here it is, May of 2008, and they start texting and chatting. Travis had a scheduled trip to Cancun, like we mentioned. From my reading and understanding is that he kind of led on to thinking that he was going to take Jody with her. He actually invited her. Right. And then this nonsense kicked up and tires started getting slashed. And he was like, you know, I don't think I want to go to Cancun with her. And was going with another person. It was uh, Marie Hall. Yeah. The Marie. Yeah. That was another thing. He just, oh, yeah, I'm not going to go to Cancun. So too bad. So apparently these two are having this huge fight via text, social media, all this chatting back and forth. So at one point he had written to her, you don't know the horror you have caused me. He called her a sociopath and the lowest of the low. Mm -hmm. So nice big fight. Yeah. So yeah. And then in early June... Of, of that year, 2008, he, you know, he was scheduled to go to a company retreat in Cancun, Mexico, and he never showed up. But before all that, you know, as Jody was staying with his, her grandparents, you know, mysterious gun disappears from their grandparents' home. Oh, yes, the gun, the disappearing gun. <laughs> so, yeah, so now we have a big fight. He's getting ready to go to, to take off to go to Cancun, and she comes up with the brilliant idea of driving from Wairica, California, back to Mesa. Yeah, but not only take your own personal car to go visit an ex-boyfriend kind of scheduled trip. It was like, get a rental, and I'm going to turn off my cell phone. I'm going to not fill up gas anywhere else where I can get caught. Yeah, that to me was the more... She asked to borrow uh, two five-gallon gas cans for her trip. And then 
there were receipts, I guess, that, you know, she was stopping at a Walmart in Salinas, California, where she got an extra can and some sunblock facial clean, uh, cleanser at the Walmart. Okay. Is it me or does this just smell of premeditation? Hey, why are you needing to buy or take three five-gallon gas tanks and not want to fill up your gas, turn off your phone? Yeah, that's definitely And renting a car? Exactly. I don't know. I think the old one would know the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds a little fishy to me. So here she comes back on her way to Phoenix, Arizona. So in the meantime, everybody's at the retreat in Cancun and everybody is texting Travis like crazy. And have you seen him? And they're calling friends and family back in Arizona and nobody can figure out what's happened to Travis. And Travis, you know, being a motivational speaker on that, he is not one to not show up somewhere. Mm -hmm. So all his guy friends are just like, wait a minute, there is something going on. You know, where is Travis? Yes. So we get to June 9th, and it's been five days since anyone has heard from him. So they're calling frantically up here, and a friend gave two of his other friends the garage code. Yeah, that's how they... So they could get in the house through the garage. And so they they get in, and they're kind of frantic in the house, and all of a sudden inside is the roommate, Zach Billings, and he was there, and they're all, where's Travis? What's going on? And he apparently had had gotten there not that long ago. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, I don't know. I haven't seen him. I don't know what's going on. They race up to his room. Where the door was locked. And that's where they found the first puddle of blood on the carpet. From what I had found was that the door was locked. And so Zachary had to find the spare key to open his room before they were able to enter. What Zach mentioned that was really interesting that caught my attention was that, and this is very typical Mormon culture, I would call it, is that if you have a roommate, it's very uncommon for you not to tell your roommate that you've left or you're getting ready to go. Like they kind of know your schedule. They know your ins and outs, like because you're very open, there's nothing to hide. But isn't some of that even common courtesy? You know, I have seen some people have roommates where you never know if your roommate's in or out. It's the most bizarre thing. All the other roommate cares about is that rent's being paid on time and the bills are paid on time, which is, I think, to me, bizarre. Why would you live with somebody that you don't communicate with on any level? On any level, yes. He gets the the key, opens up the door, and they said when they opened the door, they got this huge smell. Yeah, he had had been there a couple of days, sadly. So, yeah, they open it up. They see the, the puddle of blood. There's like a little hallway that goes back into the to the bathroom. So there's just all this blood on the tile. And for people that want to see all the nasty, gory stuff, you can go to Murderpedia, and then you can also um, Google the crime scene photos. Yes. We have a few pictures that we put on our uh, Facebook page that, you know, have the, our little uh, slideshow. But we were very careful to not pick super gross pictures because my goal, our goal is not to you know, totally gross people out. But if you want to go see it, that's where you can find it. So then, you know, there's all this blood smear on the tile floor. They get into the bathroom and the sink and the countertop was just full of blood. And then they turn around and they see the shower. Mm -hmm. And Travis is just crumpled at the bottom of the shower. So they immediately called 911. And there was, it was evident there was a struggle because I'm telling you, it looked like a bloodbath. Oh, yeah. You can definitely tell from the photos that there was some struggle. There was some moving around, maybe. There was definitely something bigger than what they expected to find when they opened that door. When you see this, the crime scene and then you, you see all the damage that was done to the body, it's evident that there was a struggle and that somebody wanted him dead. Mm-hmm. This was not an accident. It was brutal. Yes. It was a little intense, but I will tell you, us being into the healthcare world, like we were curious. And so we looked at the photos. I have a colleague that is trying to get a, her nursing degree. You know, I'd said, do you, would you like to see these photos? And she was, of course, inside her curiosity. She said she had a nightmare the next day, the next night. And she like really thought about whether she wants to be a nurse or not. Because we started talking to her. And I was like, girl, you just wait till you have to do your rounds at county. Okay. 
<laughs> and she's like, wait, I don't get to pick and choose what I want to do. And I was like, honey, that's the least thing you get to do is pick and choose. So yeah, we let's just say we got that girl thinking. Yeah, I mean, you're stuck with clinicals. Having been there, you got you got to do your rotations. It's like she asked me at working at Perryville, that was I ever afraid? And I said, uh, first of all, they're women. They were like, I didn't see them like that. I go, maybe if I would have worked at the men's prison, I may have felt a little more intimidated because those are like taller guys, big bulky men. Maybe I go, but I will tell you, if you do do your rounds in county, that's where all the inmates go. Inmates, the crazies, the the parts of society that nobody wants, the poor, the mm-hmm. indigent. You know, they're all stuffed in that corner. So yeah, you will you will see some things. There was definitely a struggle. And so the police, yeah, the police show up and they see the body. I have heard even the coroner's report, even the autopsy in the coroner's or the medical examiner's report was a little iffy. It was estimated 27 to 29 stab wounds. Most everybody goes with the 29. But when you kind of look at the pictures, you could almost see like two of them. Back to back. They're kind of back to back or they're they're kind of connected. Mm-hmm. So it would be hard. It was hard to count. I could see where they had the discrepancy between the 27 and the 29. But holy moly, this man was stabbed mm-hmm. 29 times. And I'm talking all over his body from the base of his skull all the way down to his heels. That's some anger. Yes, absolutely. And then, if that wasn't enough, his throat was slit. From ear not, to ear. Yeah, not only ear to ear, but I mean, like his neck was gaping open inches. Yeah, like uh, what does Cardi B say? That little thingly thing in the back of your throat, you can see it. Yeah, the little thingly thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was a bit of a mess. And then, to top it all off, he had a bullet wound to the head. Yes. Which I think initially they thought he was shot first, first. but then after the autopsy and when, and actually when you, when you do look at the picture, there is no blood at the, at that wound site. So he was shot after he was dead. Mm-hmm. So it's like you stab the guy umpteen million times. You basically rip his head off of his shoulders. Oh wait, bink. <laughs> I have time to put a cap in your head. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that, the crime scene was a mess. The crime scene was a mess. And I think what the most interesting thing is that the people that opened the door that were involved, that were there, the party that reported seeing him, was several people, actually. So it was, what, one, two, three, four, five, six people. The first thing when the cops asked, who do you, who do you think could have done this? Would they, who did they suspect? Some of the friends immediately said, Jody. Yeah, they also found a bloody palm print. Mm-hmm. I think it was on one of the door jams. And then she decided, oh, let me take my camera because I'm a budding photographer and toss it in the washing machine. Oh, yes. I, were we hoping to destroy evidence, photos and evidence on the SD card? Well, haha, because the police were able to retrieve the camera and retrieve the images that were on the SD card. Yes. But boy, the fingerprint powder that was used on that washer and dryer, you couldn't even tell they were white. There was so much fingerprint dust. The interesting part of this also was within hours of the police finding the body, Arias calls the police to ask about the case. Yes, because she apparently had gotten a call from a friend that told them. Wasn't that a song? I heard it from a friend who heard it from from a friend. friend. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I, but I meanwhile, heard. Meanwhile, she had left and called and left them text messages and she left several messages while she was out in Utah. So, so Utah, how do we get from Arizona to Utah? Mm-hmm. With those uh, gallons of gasoline that are. And that rent a car. Yeah. You know who let her borrow those uh, two five gallon cans, by the way? Ah. Was her ex boyfriend. Oh, snap. And he, and she said, he said later on that she never returned them. <laughs> Well, I believe they got impounded and yeah, <laughs> police My custody is evidence. So yeah, I guess he would have to contact Mesa police to get his gas cans back. You drive from California into Phoenix, get into the guy's house, kill him in the shower and not just, oh, I accidentally shot him. Oh, he accidentally turned and fell on the knife. You basically decapitate him and, you know, 29 stab wounds and then you shoot him. And so you put your camera in the washing machine 
set that on the rinse cycle or whatever she did. So then what's the next thing that would just come to mind if you're going to come in and, and murder somebody and have all this rage? You go, I know, I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to drive to Utah and see my friend Ryan Burns mm-hmm. and just calmly drive to Utah. But you know what? He indicated that she had bandages on her hands and she wore long sleeves on the days that she shouldn't have been because it was super hot that time in Utah. But still, who in their right mind would think somebody that you met through a friend in the church? Yes. Because he was kind of like, oh, kind of surprised that she called and showed up. And he's like, well, I thought you were dating Travis. We broke up. But you know what she told uh, Ryan what they were? What? That there were injuries while working at Margaritaville's restaurant. Okay, people. Like I said, we are a very educational podcast. I would not be going there because that sounds like a rough place. If you're going to get that beat up as being a food server. The best part is this, okay? So this is what she tells Ryan, right? It was later revealed that there was no such restaurant that existed in the area where her grandparents lived at. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, that just came to mind. Margaritaville. Just didn't make sense. So... Backtracking to Tish, when she shot him in the head, it was a 25 caliber gun. Guess what gun it was? The one that was missing from the grandparents? Oh my God, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Imagine that. So when the police get there and they're processing the scene, they find hair, blood, and photographs because they were able to pull images off the SD card. Mm-hmm. What does little Jody say? I wasn't there. Yes. So now we have have physical evidence. (laughs) I was like, they had hair. They had the palm print. I think there was an area where they actually had mixed blood. Yes, it was mixed blood. And you could see from... from, the handprint. Yeah, you could see from the crime scene photos that he had multiple defense wounds on his hands. Yes. And so she had wounds. These two got into it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. He he fought for his life, definitely. He did. So yeah, so she tried to... Say that she wasn't there. And from the camera, what I want to mention is that from the sexually suggestive poses that they did on the camera from on June 4th, 2008, they, the first one, approximately they felt they started around 1, 1.40 p.m. to the last photo of Travis being alive at 5.29 p.m. Yeah. And there was a couple of shots of him just in the shower, like from the waist up. Mm-hmm. But the one that's just the most riveting to me is the one where he is in the shower and you can see the droplets of water like on his face and the shower door and he's looking out and you realize when you look at the photo that he sees her and he sees something coming. Mm-hmm. Either he's not sure what it is or he can't believe what he's seeing. But just this this look in his eye and that's like the last photo of Travis. I didn't get a chance to do this, but I was really curious of this. But a lot of my photos that I've ever taken, you know, professionally or at weddings and stuff, if you really zoom in on the person's eyes, you can see my reflection. You could see me in those photos. Oh, my God. I wonder if her reflection is in there. (gasps) Yes. And so on my personal computer, like it's a touch screen, so I can really zoom in to a lot of photos when I'm doing edits on some of the photos. And... I wanted to do that, but I didn't get a chance around, of course, with Oh, you have to do that and let yes. me know what, what happens. I'll definitely, I'll leave that as a, as a question for people to ask us. So did Vanessa ever look at that photo and zoom in or not? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. It's a good question to follow up and ask me if I ever did that. Yeah, because I'm like, I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, here we've got this horrible crime scene. Mm-hmm. The police zero in on Jody. so not only do the six people in the house... Did that six include the roommate? Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. So here you got six people, obviously all too familiar with our friend Jody here. Like, yeah, that's probably Jody. And then Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, she's calling in, going, Oh, I hear my I hear my boyfriend's been killed. Yes. Way to help out the case. So it did not take them long to zero in on Miss Arius. No. And the in case you guys are curious on who the six people were that in that found Travis. It was Michelle Lowry, her boyfriend Dallin Forrest, Marie Haw, Enrique Cortez, Zachary Billings, and Amanda McBride. I can't imagine 
the horror for them because they're not used to this stuff. They're not trained in this. Oh, and first he of all, was Mormons. You know what the as a Mormon growing like when I joined the church, the most you could see was a rated PG maybe thirteen, but they wouldn't recommend you to watch PG thirteen. You were not allowed to watch PG or rated R's. Wow. So most Mormons that grow up in that world are never exposed to any of this stuff, first of all, yeah. or even to horror movies. Yeah. And I think, but I think the, the worst part for them was not even seeing it. It was the fact that he had been in that shower for a couple of days. So when they hit the top of the stairs, having no idea what was going on, they could smell. Mm -hmm. And I think subconsciously, they were like, this is not good. And when they opened that door and then got the visual, they have to be traumatized oh, for I life. I watched an um, interview. I think it was CNN interviewing Zachary Billings. He had dark circles because this is how bad it, that impact must have affected him. Because like he just didn't look like the same person. No, and I, I, I no couldn't way. even blame the guy if he wanted to move out of the house. And I'm sure he had to for a while anyway because just crime scene and everything that was going on. But could mm -hmm. you live there? I would never go back. Yeah. You would almost like, why even grab my stuff? I'm just going to take the and most important thing. I'm going now. to assume that they were roommates that spoke to each other. So they had a cordial relationship. Mm -hmm. So who wants to see that happen to their roommate? And then you're like, well, phew, could this happen to me? On top of that, the girl that was supposed to go with him to Mexico sees it, right? And this was the person that he was thinking of, of marrying. marrying. Yeah. He was really considering really, really seriously with her. You know, that, that she was the one. Yes. And so here she is seeing somebody that she thought, okay, yeah, we're having a relationship. I really like this guy. You know, he's a Mormon. I, I see us with the possibility of going to temple. And then you see this just horrific crime scene. Yeah. It scares me. Of course, it doesn't take them long to catch on to Miss Arius and trot down and, and find her. So here she comes in and, you know, they go to... uh investigate the case so they start questioning so she has three different stories mm -hmm. for somebody who is innocent or somebody who's you know, telling the truth doesn't have anything to hide they'll tell the same story even if it's ridiculous they tell the same story mm -hmm. they don't waver those people that are covering up and they have things to hide they're the ones who have all these creative stories. Oh, you didn't like that version? Oh, let me switch that. Oh, well, let's go back over to here. Oh, let me add this. And they mm -hmm. constantly change and, and do all this. So three different stories. So, of course, what was the first one? I'm innocent. I wasn't there. Yeah. Uh, we have forensic that says otherwise. Yeah, we need you to confess. I love watching the video of her doing the headstand, singing, like... I do get this. Like, she had a great voice, by the way. She could sing. I'm not going to give her credit to what she did, and that's not an excuse, but she did have some talent. I just was like, what is she doing? Who does a headstand? Are you getting ready to get interrogated? Or they're asking you questions about your former boy your former boyfriend that just is found dead. Because you're a narcissistic sociopath. <laughs> not so. <laughs> you don't feel guilt or remorse. So, of course, oh, let's just do a headstand. It's just a normal day in my world. I'd be like, I'd be having a panic attack. Like, oh my God, why do they want to talk to me? Uh-oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the first one was, yeah, I, I wasn't there. I didn't do it yet. We had forensic evidence. Then, I think this was my favorite, <laughs> two intruders broke into the house. Oh, yeah. And killed, killed Travis and forced her to watch. This was the ninjas. Yeah, the ninjas. The ninjas came <laughs> in and... I love that. I was like, ninja. They had Tori Hanzoed him. And Mesa, where a bunch of Mormons live at? No, thanks. No, no. I'm pretty sure no ninjas live around there. Exactly. And then the third, self-defense. I was abused. Okay. We know you were participating in some fairly kinky whatevers. Not going even into that, but you know, as I mentioned in the previous episode, the, the first part of this talk was the perspective of what I said, like going into why maybe she got the jealousy and stuff from. Mm -hmm. So what I was thinking about was the self-defense was where she started saying, oh, he was bruising me. He was doing all this, you know, domestic violence, right? I think that it came to the point where Travis was like, I'm fed up with you. I want to push you away. And he was maybe like just slightly pushing you. Like I said, he was six foot tall, weighed 180 something pounds. She was only 
115 pounds. She was light, so I'm pretty sure she probably got easy bruising. So any little push or any move or whatever, like he could have probably did, you know, the elbow move where he's like, get away from me. Yeah, and she didn't seem to take no for an answer very well. Well, and she probably saw a change in his demeanor, right? A guy can only put up with so much and he's going to finally like start being like mean, right? She saw this nice Mormon guy. Now he's being mean to me. So she immediately took it as domestic violence. People that have suffered, you know, documented abuse and they seem to find a way to put their their big boy or girl pants on, pull themselves up by their boots, go out and make something of themselves, make a difference, you know, try to change someone else's life. And then people that have had a decent middle class or privileged life, had parents, had things. And then as soon as they kind of go off the reservation and think that they can get away with stuff and then they get caught, it's like the first thing they scream is, I was abused. You know, and it just... Oh, that yanks my chain because so many people are abused and it nobody believes them. Yes. And you know what's very interesting is that she found the time to record their phone calls and stuff, right? And she was very careful what, you know, from my hearing the phone calls, she was very careful what she was bringing up and what she was mentioning because she knows that she was recording. If she was this photographer that she, you know, was wanting to do it professionally and he was abusing her and there were bruises why wasn't you taking photos even with your camera exactly but you recorded a conversation and you wanted to record your sexual conversations was this like a threat that you were using against travis to the point where you were like if i recorded you talking dirty to me or saying all these things to me and if you don't send it if you don't get back to me or if you don't do this or that to for me I'm going to send it to the bishop. I'm going to send it to the ward, you know, president. I'm going to send it to your family. Yeah, and that's that could be part of the hold she had on him because he could just never get away from her. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would last weeks, a couple months, and then boom, right back into it. And it could be if she was being that manipulative and recording that. So, yeah, I just, the abuse is excuse. It's just so many people have legit stuff and they just, nobody believes them. And it just gets swept under. And then you got this other group of people that, oh, this is just a convenient excuse. It's never about my behavior and my responsibility. Oh, I was abused. You know, if he was so abusive, then why were you still with him? Because mm-hmm. they weren't even together. I mean, I get how some people, they get stuck in a marriage. They have kids. They don't have a job. They have no skills. They can't get away. Right. I'm like, you had a job. You were single. You're only dating this guy. And you had a boyfriend, so it's not like you're somebody that can't get a guy. Mm -hmm. If he was this abusive, why would you stay? So I just never bought that excuse, ever. (laughs) (laughs) So July 9th is when she gets charged. Uh, She's indicted by a grand jury on first-degree murder. And she gets arrested at her grandparents' home on July 15, 2008. She was extradited to Arizona on September 5th. And you know when she pleaded not guilty? Mm, when? September 11th. Oh, my God. My birthday. <laughs> Why? Which, What's up with the it's thing? also producer Dave's birthday. So You guys share birthdays. I mean, cool people do. So we have Norma Jean. We have OJ's birthday. We have 9-11. Dun, dun, dun. dun. <laughs> and aliens. <laughs> so she gets caught. She's going to trial. She mm-hmm. does her plea and they have a trial. Which is crazy. 10 months. 10 months of blather. I would have probably had to hang myself. <sighs> I mean, we talk about like how much does somebody make to be on the jury? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not especially in Arizona. Nothing. It's like 12 or 12.50 a day plus mileage from the center of your zip code. Mm-hmm. So here she is on trial. 10 months. Mm-hmm. Poor me. It's all about me. Travis was this, that, and the other thing. I mean, they just assassinated his character. Oh, yeah. Assassinated his religion. Just assassinated everything everything about him. And then just tried to put it out of, he just uh, had her as his dirty little secret. Yes. Which, by the way, is what the Lifetime movie's called. Really? Dirty Little Little Secret. Secret. Yeah. It was just... She was just something on the side. Well, she also put herself there. She wasn't saying no to sex. Mm -hmm. She was all in. She was kind of instigating a lot of that stuff. So, you know, one thing that I wanted to mention that, you know, as part of this case, 
uh, we talked about, you know, a lot of questions about Mormons and um, her journals were a part of the evidence. And what I want to mention is that I don't know if she started writing in journals after she became Mormon. Um, from the looks of it, that's what it looks like. But being in the culture of Mormonism, uh, it is very important to document your life. So they really highly ask a lot of people to write their journals on a daily basis to keep track so that way future generations can read what your life was like. Because I've never seen a journal from any of my family. That would have been cool to have found. So can you think of like generations, you know, if I wrote a journal to leave to them, but they would be able to see a day-to-day of what was it like to be Vanny, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like so sort of a, a living history, but written down. But written down. So that's why she had the journals and she was writing all kinds of stuff. She started, I mean, one of the one of the entries that I read from her journal was Travis, like this is kind of the influence that he had and how Christmas was very important was that she used to write Xmas as Christmas. And he told her, like, just think about what you're crossing out. Oh, she makes that mention of, you know, now she writes, she wrote out the word Christmas instead of writing Xmas. That's kind of the positive influence that he had in her life. Yeah. So now every time I take a shortcut and write Xmas, I can feel guilty. <laughs> That's exactly what she said. She felt guilty. So something kind of yeah. something kind of cool a little bit about this. Yeah. So this was just a really, really long trial. Mm-hmm. And I think when they put her on the stand, I, she was on there for like 10 days. Yeah. She even suggested that she wanted to go back to the actual scene, the crime scene. Okay. I'm talking about Travis's old house. house. Oh my gosh. People had already purchased and they didn't want the kids to know that there was a you know, emergency that had happened in this house. They had renovated the whole home and there was no point in them coming. So the families were like, no, heck no. Wow. So how does like a normal, you know, I'm going to kind of assume be a Mesa, you know, Mormon family. How do you move into a house like that? I don't think the people that moved in were probably Mormon. I mean, I have the address if we really wanted to get nosy and start looking, but I honestly don't think it was a Mormon family just because the impact that this made in the Mormon community in Mesa, where the Mesa temple's at. You know, I got my temple recommend. Yeah, I went inside the Mesa temple. There was probably times that I probably crossed paths with Travis. I was a Mormon around the same time. So why? There's a possibility, you know? We could have crossed in the temple plenty of times and not known. I mean, I was in the West Side, so I didn't really... When I moved to Scottsdale, though, I was a part of the Young Single Awards that was in, actually, it was in Tempe, which was a part of the Tempe Awatuki. And I used to go to the Institute in at ASU, which is a part of the Mormon Church. So we did a lot of things that probably ran into paths and didn't even know. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> crazy to think about, but I just, that just hit me right now. Yeah, but it's it's very real. It's because very, very real. Uh, that temple out in mesa i have been doing especially with the christmas lights and stuff that thing is gorgeous it's huge too it's like a couple acres it's it's nice very prominent and at uh, easter time they do the passion of christ like a whole like everybody gets they volunteer to be a part of it like sometimes you have to wait two years to even be a part of the passion of christ to be one of the actors or actresses yeah, going kind of back into this, the trial, like it just definitely was something else. Yeah. And her, her, her words, she kind of stood up and she was like, no jury is going to convict me. She had it all planned out. Her. I am innocent and you can mark my words on that. That's exactly what she said. She was on the interview with Inside Edition when she said that. Yeah. Cause they did a uh, jailhouse interview with her. She would take any, I think this is how it grew up a lot too, is like she would take any opportunity that the media would reach out to her to do an interview. She was like, I'm all in. Now, I heard somewhere in one of the videos that I was watching that she requested the media if she was going to do an interview that she didn't want to be in stripes. But I kind of feel like the media didn't want her to be in stripes because they wanted to portray her differently in the media. Like I said, she became famous uh, because of this murder. Yeah, I'm not sure what was up with that because sometimes you see her in street clothes and sometimes you see her in the stripes and I didn't know if the street clothes was just strictly the media courtroom. A lot of the interviews when she was interviewed, I saw like a lot of the raw footages that when she did, especially with Fox News here in town, she had a regular shirt on and and, and in the raw footage, it says 
everything above her waist. We do not want to show no stripes, guys. Yeah, it was a regular media frenzy. I mean, 48 hours did mm -hmm. a piece on her, Picture Perfect in 2008. Inside Edition, of course, did her jailhouse interview uh, September of 08. Uh, she was in international headlines and the media just became a runaway train. And the Toronto Star had an interesting quote when they were talking about this media frenzy and they said it was a mix of jealousy, religion, murder and sex. The Jody Arias case shows what happens when the justice system becomes entertainment. So do we lose sight, you know, of the whole focus? I think so. It, you be, know. it became the Jody Arias show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because there was a part whenever the prosecutor shows the photo of Travis when his neck was sliced, right? Mm -hmm. He's about to show it and then they tell him not to. Or maybe he accidentally shows it. Like you see Jody like look at the screen like, oh, my gosh, like her eyes get super wide. But just when she did that, I think that was also brought up in the media, like a big thing. Like that's when she testified for the 18 days, like, I mean, they dragged that on, dragged it on for a reason. And the fact that she lied about planning to commit suicide while she was in county and she kind of nicked herself a little and she realized that that hurt too much. I just loved when the oh. when Juan Martinez asked her, well, if that hurt you, how do you think Travis felt? Yeah. That was a great question. Yeah. And then it was rumored by uh, her cellmate, Tracy Brown. It could be true. It could be jailhouse scuttlebutt. I mean, I don't know how much you believe another inmate, but she claimed that Jody did a uh, jailhouse strip tease for her. Wow. I have extensive experience with women behind bars, and part of that could be true, and part of it could just be jailhouse scuttlebutt. However, Tracy Brown also mentioned that she would flirt with officers, and I have no doubt in my mind that she wasn't flirting with each and every one of them and trying to get favors, because that's just how she operates. Mm -hmm. You know, she is, she is a manipulator. So I wanted to tap on two things about this whole manipulating and stuff in the defense. They, they hired an expert to testify that Jody suffered from PTSD and amnesia. And then one of the other things that another defense witness uh, tells the juror that Jody was abused by Travis and suffered from battered women's syndrome. And so then there was, I guess, a therapist that sparked a debate between her and uh, Juan Martinez over whether Snow White was an abused woman. Snow White, because she lived with seven dwarfs. Snow White was considered an abused woman. That's what they're debating about. I'm like, how do you compare Jody to Snow White? Whatever. Just, that doesn't even make sense. Okay. So they're trying to throw that Snow White was abused because she sang and picked up after seven dwarfs. How about comparing her to Snow White made a bad decision by eating that apple? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it comes down to, you know, bad decision. Why is it ultimately abuse? Right. You know, Snow White was like, ooh, free apple, no questions. Let me eat that. Mm -hmm. I have no idea where it's been, but hey. I'm going to try it. Yeah. It just no, no accountability with these people. Um, also, one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting about the trial was a juror was dismissed reportedly for making statements that showed that they were biased. By that time, the case is like a tabloid cable TV sensation, right? And so two more jurors eventually get released as well. But not to even not just even talking about jurors that we got to miss. I mean, how many attorneys did she go through? Oh yeah, quite a few. But the funny part was she was just absolutely uh, shell shocked by the conviction. Yes, when they reached when they finally reached. I'm like, if you could see the pictures of what happened, and you have the nerve to say you're shell shocked, how do you think Travis felt? Yeah. And, you know, when she was doing her like little plea about not getting a death sentence, you know, she mentions about how, you know, she would cry here and there, right, about throughout the whole trial. But one of the things that I listened to, it was really hard to listen to, actually, was when Travis's siblings talked. The sister brings up a picture that Travis forced her to take with him. She didn't really want to take a picture with him. She was like, Travis, you always want to take pictures. And he forced her. But that was actually the last photo they took together. So she brings that up. The brother, on the other hand, he was married, like I said, they were devout Mormons. The brother ends up having to go through a divorce. This is how much of an impact this the trial, like he was just like fed up. He even men, makes a call that says, I'm just tired of looking at my, my brother's murderer. I don't want to see her anymore. That she took that when she was pleading for her life, like that impacted her. That 
you know, she felt bad that his family looked at her this way. And the reason why she didn't want to commit suicide was because of her family. They were being there supportive. And it's like, yeah, they're also victims. Like you put them through this, like coming from a family that, that was so close knit and close together. Like now you're tearing the family apart. You tear, you tore the family apart, not just Travis's family, but your own family as well. Yeah. And when you have a narcissist and antisocial, they don't get it because it's about me. I don't, nothing else that happens to you guys means anything. It's all about me and what happens. They went ahead and of course they found her guilty. Sadly, well, I guess it depends how you feel, and that's a whole other debate. But two juries could not come to terms with the death penalty. So she got first-degree murder with life without parole. Mm -hmm. So, And then, if that wasn't enough, she decided on one of her lawyers, uh, Kirk Numi, he wrote a book called Trapped with Ms. Arias. And she claimed that he violated the rules of ethical conduct by writing a tell-all about her. This is a public trial and anybody can write about you because it's public. Mm -hmm. You allowed it. Yeah. And he did it after you were convicted. So he's no longer your attorney. Right. So let him make all the money he can. But yeah, so she had a fit about that. You know, that didn't go anywhere. And it was interesting because here's her own attorney, okay, that he was defending her in court. So she's trying to sue him for writing the book. And he said, standing up to the abuse Ms. Arias imparted upon me over the years was an important part of my personal transformation. And I will continue to fight this battle with vigor as I defend my lawsuit, which is best viewed as a continuation of Ms. Arias's pattern of attacking men whom she feels have wronged her. And this, this is the exchange going on between her and her own attorney. Wow. So... And then what I thought was interesting was her <laughs> trial like team. Oh, yeah. Her trial team decided that, you know, if at first you don't succeed, they decided to, uh, they made three different attempts for mistrial during this 10-month trial. So the first one was in January, and they claimed that Detective Esteban Flores perjured himself from a statement he said in pretrial the, what he said in the regular trial as he was reviewing, you know, his, his coming upon the crime scene. Mm -hmm. It didn't match word for word. And so they were like, eh, thanks for playing. <laughs> you know, he didn't perjure himself. He just, you know, I, I don't know what exactly was said, but, you know, he was talking about the crime scene in the pretrial. He was talking about the crime scene, and the, but it wasn't enough that he like lied or completely said mm -hmm. something different. I think he just, oh, well, it was on the right hand of the sink versus the left hand. Like, really? Okay. So then in April, not to be dissuaded, they claimed that the uh, prosecutor acted inappropriately and that the case resembled a modern day Salem witch trial. I don't know of any witches in Salem that did anything half as evil as what she did. Mm -hmm. So again, the court went, eh, thanks for playing. So now it's May. We're coming to, we're, you know, trials beginning to wind down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so they, three strikes, you're out. They decided to bring up the fact that a key witness had her life threatened and she was unwilling to testify. Uh, Alice LaVallette. The court was kind of like, it's your witness. If she doesn't want to testify, it sucks to be you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that they were like, eh, thanks for playing. So all three of those were thrown out. So then she decides to appeal to the Arizona Supreme Court, which they didn't even want to hear her case. You threw it out. Yeah, they didn't want anything to do with it. But they were trying to argue one that one of the aggravating factors of cruelty be thrown out. Like She's still doing life, but they wanted the aggravating factor thrown out because they claim that the prosecutor, Juan Martinez, changed his theory of the crime. Right. So in the beginning, he thought that she shot him. But after, and this was pre-trial, so after he has all the evidence and he has the medical examiner's report and the medical examiner's like, yes, there's a bullet wound to the head. And again, if you look at the pictures, you can see that there's no blood. She shot him at the very end when he was already dead. Right. So like, oh, he was already dead when she shot him. <laughs> okay. I, to me, it's still aggravating, but the Supreme Court wasn't having any of it. Everything that she tried to do was denied. So here she sits in jail, and I would like to say she was having a terrible time of it, mm -hmm. but apparently it's not so terrible. 
So she uh, is in prison, but she can order commissary. Um, I think the one thing that annoys me the most is when inmates can make money off of their artwork. And so a prime example was John Wayne Gacy drew. And the thing that just creeped me out was not that he had any talent or could draw, but he would always draw the seven dwarfs. Another reference to Snow White. I know. But he's messing with Disney. I'm like, this guy is like evil and he's doing Disney. No, I draw skulls, flames. I don't know. You're, you're drawing dwarfs. So now little Miss Jody's sitting in prison and she's selling artwork. Mm-hmm. I'm making money off of it. Yeah, must be nice. So fat commissary. Yeah, so this is very interesting bringing up commissary. Jody's her shopping list. This were just a few things that was mentioned that, that I shared with you that I thought I should read was she was buying acne wash, anti-shank toothbrushes, Beano, clarifying shampoo, lotion, like dandruff shampoo, deodorant, tucks. She was buying like mayonnaise, bacon bits, tortilla chips, vitamin C, almonds. She was buying sweatpants, sketch pads, colored pencils, erasers, pocket dictionary, and this was like, I guess, reported and was thrown at on Nancy Grace's show. I guess one of her first jobs was actually a housing porter. I find that interesting because remember when I asked you in one of our episodes about what is a porter? What do they do? For our fans that really listen to our show, remember our first show so they'll know what a porter is. Yes. But porter is somebody that basically cleans up and does janitorial type services. services. Yes. and so. I then kind of like dug a little deeper because I wanted to know a little bit more of her life, you know, while she was at Perryville. And since, you know, we weren't there, I found out that she was upset that the that got leaked out by somebody. She doesn't know who or what, but she was upset about it. Somebody tried mentioning that she was buying like 10 of the toothbrushes and that she was using them as sex toys, as dildos, which... You know, she later came on a, on the, a show, another show, I don't know what show she came on, but she talked about that. The reason why she was purchasing so many things since it was out in public now, she felt she needed to say something, was that she can't give 10% of her tithing and she really can't, as an active Mormon, because the church does not go out to the prison. I don't know why, but they don't, nobody yet goes out to the prison. That is her way of giving tithing is that she would purchase a lot of stuff from her art selling and give those things to less fortunate people that are in Perryville. The indigents, you know, and in response to the comment of using it as a dildo, um, (laughs) I can't wait for season two when we can start really talking about all the stuff and what goes on in prison. If you've ever seen a toothbrush, if it's an inch and a half long, I mean, you have just enough to grip with your two fingers and it's the head of the brush. And it's that way because they were taken the regular handle that you would have on a normal size toothbrush and they were sharpening it on the floor and the walls and they were making shanks out of it. Yes. So you have this nub that you grip with two fingers and then you have the head of a toothbrush. So anybody who's using that as a sex toy, wow. And what they portrayed was that these were the anti-shank toothbrushes that are being sold at Perryville. I don't think that, I've never seen these. I've never seen those. They were always the little white ones. Exactly. In fact, somewhere I have one. I, that's why I wanted to show you the photo. And yeah, that's not even. I mean, that's a full handle toothbrush. And so that looks like a reach toothbrush. And that's why they said that she was putting like 10 brushes together and make it into oh, a dildo. Okay. And next season when we have a guest, we'll try we to delve ask. into that to see what's going on. But that is not any toothbrush that I have ever seen anywhere yes. in any of the yards, male, female. That's just not it. Yeah. So I took a screenshot of this from the from the show and I'll, I'll share it with producer Dave so that, you know, we, we can give the audience a little more visual of what we're talking about. So Yeah, because those, to my knowledge, do not exist. Exactly. Because of the chance of it being a weapon. My two cents as well. But one of the things I, I, I wouldn't wanted to mention before we start closing this case was that some of the questions that got asked from the jury to Jody were pretty interesting. And one that I want to mention is because you asked me about the coffee and the caffeine, and I want to read what she said. They asked her, why didn't you read the Book of Mormon to see what you were and were not allowed to do? And she said, I did read the Book of Mormon. There is additional doctrines that explains the the commandments much more. Such things are called the doctrine and covenants. The Book of Mormon covers a lot of basics, 
very similar to the Bible. And some of those things, like the Beatitudes, are rewarded in one portion of it. I think the Ten Commandments are sort of rewarded in some portion of it. But it's more the Doctrine and Covenants that goes into much detail. Also, the presidencies of the church gone through the clarification even more that certain commandments mean what that really entails, such as the word of wisdom. When the Doctrine and Covenants was written in the 1800s, it doesn't say anything about coffee, tea, or alcohol, or illegal drugs. It mentions hot teas and tobacco, and more clarification was given in the 20th century, and so it's kind of like that. I did read the Book of Mormon, but it's not ultra-specific. It actually reads in the Doctrine and Covenants, now that I read this, that it entailed that it does only mention hot drinks and tobacco. So nowhere is it ever mentioned about caffeine. It wasn't until later on that the president, I don't remember which president it was, but mentioned that included caffeine. That's where they got coffee is a hot drink. Tea is a hot drink normally. Yeah, they didn't uh, invent soda at that time. At that yet. time, which I thought Coke and Dr. Pepper was out by then. I could be wrong. So, anyways, if you guys are curious about some of these other jury questions that they asked and you want some of them answered, we would love to to share those on our show. And like I said, some of these questions are pretty interesting on here. Yeah, so. so please, you know, stop by, stop by the group, you know, ask your questions. Yes, we're looking forward to answering those on our next podcast. And we look forward to you listening to us on season two. I so. know, I'm, I'm getting excited for season two. So just, you know, think about what kind of stuff you want to uh, learn about well. and what happens, you know, behind scenes and behind prison with commissary and different things, you know, how to... Inmates, their beauty tips on how they clean. Yes, and guess we'll catch you guys up um, on Prison Talk. Absolutely, absolutely. So Looking until then, take care. Thank you guys for hanging with us for the whole season. Yes. We couldn't have made it without you. We just appreciate it. We love you all, and we look forward to you guys listening to us again. Yeah, so hang in there. Remember, be kind, and stay safe. And we'll listen to you guys then. Take care. Bye. Bye. Time for Crime is a podcast about true crime, prison life, and the opinions from the people who've worked on the inside. Please follow us and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcatching software. Help us get our voice out there. You can get more information about the podcast and this case at www.timeforcrime.net. Look for us on Twitter at Time for Crime one or on Facebook at Time for Crime Vanny Cat. Feel free to leave us a comment on our voicemail at 623-292-5871. We might even put your call on the podcast. Like it, love it, and share it, but please credit the hosts Vanessa Nunez and Kathy Delaney for their commitment to the podcast and service to the community. We'd like to send a special thanks to Nickel Nynth for the music in this podcast. We'd also like to thank Dave Kaiser and Peter Nynth for their support of the podcast and website. And most importantly, we'd like to thank you, the listener. Without you, we couldn't bring you this podcast. Take care, everyone.